as you and I conclude our series, Relationship Not Rules, as we look at the Ten Commandments, we come to the Tenth Commandment of Coveting. And I'd like you to take your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17 says, You must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. And when the people heard the thunder and the loud blasts of the ram's horn, and when they heard the flashes of lightning, the smoke billowing from the mountain, they stood at a distance and trembled with fear. I wonder today, do we have a righteous respect for the Word of God? How, how are you handling God's Word in your life? Does it cause within you this trembling of God? I want to so handle your Word well, and not just with my mouth, but with my life in the way that I live out your Word. You see... Many of us look at the Ten Commandments as just a list of suggestions instead of a list for life. It's God's call for you and I because he understands that that if you and I just look at it as this list of suggestions and, and we really don't take it to heart, we'll ruin our reputation. And more importantly, we will ruin our relationships with one another. Now, the word here, to covet, means to pant after, just like a dog. Every once in a while, I will eat potato chips in front of my dog. And it's always amazing to watch her. She sits there, and she is zoned in, not on me, but on those chips. And she watches every one of them disappear in my mouth. And I know what she's thinking. I want that one. I want that one. I want that one. Oh, I hope he drops that one. What would happen if I accidentally dropped the bag? She would what? She would consume them. Why? Because that's what coveting does in our life. It causes us to be consumers. Now today, we're convincing ourselves that the main problem in our culture, in our country, is a political problem. And we've got some political problems in this country. But do you realize our greatest problem is not political, it's personal? Because one of the things that's destroying this country is coveting. And we have become a consuming nation instead of a contributing nation. Do you realize the rest of the world is busy working to make all of the stuff to ship it here so that we can what? Consume, consume, consume. And we are consuming the world today instead of contributing to the world. Why? Because we have a coveting spirit. You go to Africa and you will see kids that literally, they may only have a pair of shorts. They don't even have a shirt. There's one soccer ball in the whole village and you'll see them out there playing with no shoes, running, kicking the ball, laughing and smiling and they're happy. And then you come here where we have everything and we're all walking around mad. Why? Because more is making us miserable. You see, it's here that that you and I realize that nothing destroys peace in our lives like the myth of more. And many of us, what we're believing today is if I had more of this or if I had more of that, I could be happy, I could be content, I could have peace. But let me ask you a question. 
when is enough enough? We have gotten to a place in our culture today where our expensive vehicles are sitting in the driveway because there's no room in the garage. It's full of stuff. Why? Because we had to have more. And so we moved all of the things into the garage so we could bring more things into our house. And we've also got more, what, storage units than anyone else on the planet. We don't even know what's in them. And yet we need more. When's it enough? You see, coveting ruins relationships. You know why? Because it places the priority on possessing. And here's what we do to our relationships. We no longer see people as people. We see them as something to possess. What can I get out of that person? How many of us are in those relationships today where where we're just simply looking at it for what can I get out of that person? You know why our marriages are miserable? Because we want more. We want more. Because we're making it about getting instead of giving. It's here that you and I are confronted with two hearts and two headings. The first heart is a coveting heart. The second is a controlled heart. Two different headings, righteousness and ruin. Let me ask you this question. What heart do you have today? Because the heart you have will determine the heading that you have. How do you know if you have a coveting heart or a controlled heart? Well, the Bible speaks to both of those, and we're going to look first at a coveting heart, and then we are going to look at a controlled heart. Do you realize last year, U.S. advertisers spent $200 billion advertising their products? Why? Because they understood this truth. If they can convince us that we want what they have, we will consume. You see, they are buying into our coveting spirit. And what it's creating is this consumerism. And it's not just in the world, it's in the church. Because we come and our our reasoning for being here this morning is to worship God, right? Our central focus should just be about Jesus. But how many of us come with that consumer Christian mentality and we make it about us? Did I like the worship? What did I get? Was I happy? Was I greeted? Me, 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 more, more, more. Do you notice here that you and I, according to Exodus 17, we can covet everything and anything. Not just possessions, but people. We can start to covet relationships, not just riches. And what do all of those things have in common? Just one simple thing, they're all temporary. You see, at its heart, coveting makes it about the things that are earthly, not eternal. And I think one of the mistakes that we're making as parents today is we're talking to our kids about what are you going to do with the rest of your life? And yet it's such a limited question in our minds as parents. Let me ask you a question. If your kids are saved, how long is their life? It's eternal, right? But what are we doing? We're saying, what do you want to do with just the earthly part of your life, not the eternal part of your life? The question that we need to stop asking is, what are you going to build here on earth? And the question we need to start asking is, what are you investing in eternity? And as you and I parent our kids, as they come to Christ, we have to understand 
But we need to invest in them in such a way that they understand that it's not just building for here, it is investing into eternity. There are two things that coveting does in our life. It corrupts us and it calluses us. And as you and I think about that corrupting effect, it ruins our relationships. Now, many of us, we, we tend to look at the Ten Commandments as just Old Testament stuff, right? Jesus summarized it all, and he said, love God, love your neighbor. Relationship with God, relationship with one another. It says this in Romans thirteen nine: the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, whatever other commandments there are, are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. But you realize it's really hard to love people when they're getting in the way of what you want. Because you've made the priority of life not loving, but lusting. Not people, but possessing. And for many of us, it comes down to our possessions. It also says in Romans chapter 12 that we're to rejoice with those that rejoice, and we are to mourn with those that mourn. You know what coveting does in our life? It twists that truth. Let's imagine for a moment there's a car that you really want. We really don't have to imagine, right? (laughs) And your really, really, really good friend ends up getting that car. But you wanted it. Here's what coveting does in your life. It twists the truth because instead of rejoicing with them, you're mourning. You're sad about it. Now imagine that a couple of days after they get this awesome car, they get in a fender bender and the thing's all bashed up. They're kind of sad about it, right? But you see, you don't mourn with them. You secretly rejoice. Do you see how coveting twists the truth in our life? And it causes us to compare. It causes us to compete instead of cooperate with one another. And there are many churches today that that we're caught up in this competition with one another. Can I tell you, we're not competing with other churches in the valley. There are some great churches in the valley. There are pastors that absolutely love the Lord. You need to pray for them. You need to pray for those churches. Do you realize how many churches in our country are closing every year? Do you realize that every year or every Monday, 400 pastors leave the ministry? But you see, it's so easy for us to get caught up in these comparisons and these competing with one another because we start to covet. I want that. I want that. Now, we're going to look at the life of a man who had a a momentary lapse of love for the Lord. And that love got replaced by lust. He he had a coveting spirit, and we're going to see how that corrupted not only him, but the lives of others. That man is David. Now, I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Now, why did I pick on David? We could have gone ahead and looked at Ahab and, and Naboth. And Naboth had this vineyard, and Ahab coveted that, and you get to see him pouting around because he doesn't get it for a while, and he eventually has the guy killed so he can get it. But see, Ahab's an ungodly man. But David was a man after God's own heart. And what I want you to understand today is that coveting can control Christians, that it can take root in our life and take over, and it can become the poison that corrupts our relationships. Look with me at Second Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. 
And they destroyed the Ammonite army, laid siege to the city of Reba. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem late one afternoon after his midday rest. David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. And as he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. And he sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to, messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. Now look at verse 5. Later, when Bathsheba discovered she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I am pregnant. Now let me ask you this question. Where should David have been? At war. But for some reason, David decided he didn't need to go to war. The war still needed to be fought, and David believed this lie. I can just send others to fight the war for me. Let me tell you, that is not leadership. That is being lazy. And many of us today, we're buying into the lie, you know what, I don't have to show up in my Christian walk. I can, I can just coast in my Christian life. You know what happens when you and I coast? We go backwards. Why? Because there are currents pulling at us. And you and I have got to put on the full armor of God. We've got to show up to the field of battle. And we've got to make our stand for the Savior, right? Every single day. But how many of us as men are like David? We have this lazy leadership. I'll just let someone else go to war for me. Now you notice that David was taking a nap in the middle of the afternoon. Okay, No offense, but that's what old people do. Now, why did David take a nap in the middle of the afternoon? It's not like he was doing anything. He's laying around in his palace. How can you be tired? It'd be one thing if David had fought hard all morning, come back. He was taking a nap to get ready to go out and fight again that evening. But that's not what's going on. Do you know what lazy does does in our life? It wears us out. And we just become more and more lazy. And we cater more and more to our flesh. So David gets up and he goes for a walk and he sees this beautiful woman, Bathsheba, and she's taking a bath. You know what lust is? Lust is the second look. Lust is the lingering. Guys, let me tell you something. The gateway to our heart is through our eyes. And you've got to protect that gateway. And there are times in our lives as men because of the culture in which we live where we are confronted with more than we wanted to see, right? And, and we, we didn't go looking for that. We just happened to be in Walmart and someone decided to show up partially dressed. It happens on a fairly regular basis. And ladies, I want to encourage you. Take a look at, at, at the way you're presenting yourself. Not so much because of how you can affect men, but because of your testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that how Jesus wants you to dress? But guys, do you realize that your eyes, the gateway to your heart, are on a pivot? Look at this. It doesn't turn as freely as it once did. And maybe you're going to get to a point in your life where you're like, it won't move. Guess what? You can pivot your whole body at that point. And maybe it'll take you a little longer than it used to, but you can turn away. You don't have to lust. 
But see, if David had put himself where he was supposed to be, serving God, doing what God had caused him to do, he wouldn't have been in that situation in the first place. And many of us, we're putting ourselves in vulnerable situations because of lazy leadership. And you notice what David does next. It's not enough just to lust after. And some of you guys understand this. You are looking at pornography on a regular basis. You are choosing to lust. But you see, it's not enough. Because one thing about the flesh is you can't feed the flesh and fill the flesh. And so you just got to keep feeding and feeding and feeding. And he inquires about her. And he finds out a very critical piece of information. She's married. Do you notice what David does with that? He disregards it. What is he doing? He's disregarding the Word of God. Why do you and I get ourselves in trouble? Because we disregard the Word of God. That doesn't matter to me right now because I am not living a loving-based leadership. It is a lust-based leadership. It's not about God. It's about greed in my life. And so David says this, get her. Now, let me ask you a question, ladies. Does that sound like a loving man? Get her. Do you see how he's starting to see her as a possession, not a person? And I want to take a moment, especially those of you young gals that are not married. You need to be very careful about the relationships that you get into. You need to look for a man who is a loving leader, not a lording, lusting leader, a lazy leader. David's at home playing games with God. And if you've got a guy in your life that's just playing games with God and he's just lusting, he's only in it for what he can get, sure, he's going to say whatever you want to hear. But it's not about his words so much as his walk. Let me ask you, does his walk include warring for God? Because if you're dealing with a lazy leader, kick him to the curb. He's not going to lead you to Jesus. He'll only lead you to more heartache. Do you notice what David does after he sleeps with her? Send her home. He used her. Why? Why do we use people? Because we've become consumers today. Because coveting causes us to turn people into possessions. And so we use people. But there's a problem. She becomes pregnant. But you see, David has a solution for that. Can I tell you something about a godly man? A godly man confesses his sins. He doesn't cover up his sins. And it's amazing how much effort and time and thought David puts into covering up instead of just simply confessing. We are wasting huge amounts of time today trying to hide our sin instead of being honest about our sin. And so he brings Uriah back from the battle, and he thinks Uriah will go home, he'll sleep with his wife, everyone will think it's Uriah's child, problem solved. We always think that we have a solution to sin. There's only one solution to sin. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. The Savior has the solution, not us. So stop trying to come up with a solution to your sin and just confess it to Christ. Now, do you notice something here? Now we have two men that are not at war. Do you see how it's starting to corrupt? Now Uriah's not in the fight. Your coveting will, will affect and corrupt the people around you. But here's the thing about Uriah. Uriah was a faithful man. He was focused on God. And this amazes me. He's a Hittite. He's not a Jew. But he loves God more than David loves God. And he says this, 
And I want you to read the rest of the chapter on your own. He says the ark is in the field, that's God, and God's people are in the field. And as long as they're in the field of battle, living in tents, I'm not going home to feed my flesh. I'm going to be faithful. And he stays there at the palace and he sleeps with the palace guard. That's a real man of God. See, it backfires on David because David assumed that Uriah would have the same kind of coveting heart that he did, not a controlled heart. So David gets him drunk. You see the corrupting effects? Man, in order to cover up sin, now it's okay for me to, to get someone drunk. Why? Because he thinks that Uriah will lose his head and just go home and sleep with his wife. But do you notice something here? Uriah doesn't. Why? Because Uriah's decision was not a decision of the head. It was a decision of the heart. Man, I want to ask you a question. Is your decision to be sold out for Jesus just a rational decision of your head or a radical decision of your heart? Because if it's just a head decision, people can change your mind. People can fill your head with all kinds of lies. And I want to challenge us today. Are we making our decision to be faithful based on a radical heart or just a rational decision of the head? So what does David do? David goes ahead and sends Uriah back to the battle with a note. And the note is to be given to the commander, and this is the note. Send Uriah into the thickest part of the battle, and when things look their worst, have everyone retreat. Just leave him out there hanging. David has him murdered. Because a cover-up is more important than a confession. Why? That's what coveting will do in your life. You see... What happens for many of us as we come to the Ten Commandments is we see these as just nothing more than a list. We don't see them as a way of life. And when you see them as just a list, you see them in descending order from most important to least important. Therefore, when you get to do not covet, it's not that important. But can I tell you something? Coveting caused David to break all but one of the other commands. Let me share this with you. He started with breaking command number 10. He coveted, right? That led to adultery, breaking command number 7. That led to him stealing Bathsheba, breaking command number 8. And he committed murder in order to steal her, breaking command number 6. He broke command number 9 by lying about it, which brought dishonor to his parents, breaking command number 5. He did not put God first, breaking command number one and number two, which dishonored God's name, breaking command number three. But you realize that same slippery slope of sin we can so easily fall into. Let me ask you a couple questions when it comes to the commands and when it comes to coveting. How many of us have put money and possessions ahead of God? Breaking command number one. When it comes to command number two, how many of us have readily bowed to the altars of materialism and greed instead of God? Command number three, how many of us have blasphemed the name of the Lord in an attempt to acquire things? And by the way, when you disregard God's word to get your wants, that's blaspheming his name. Command number four, how many of us have desecrated the Sabbath, refusing to rest because we've made it about making money? Command number five, how many of us are dismissing parents today because we're too busy chasing a career to care for them. Command number six, how many of us have killed people, whether it's in our mind or with our mouth, 
because they had something that we wanted that we coveted. Command number seven, how many marriages have been torn apart because we're so caught up earning our salt that we're not caring for our sugar? What about command number eight? How many of us have seen a coveting spirit go from attitude to action through stealing? Command number nine, how many of us, like David, have tried to lie to cover up a coveting spirit? But you see, coveting doesn't just corrupt. It also calluses us. And you notice David's heart here. He has a heart that is focused on greed. Uriah has a heart that is focused on God. A coveting heart and a controlled heart. But you see, there are consequences. And coveting brings catastrophe. The baby that is conceived dies. That's an absolute catastrophe. The death of relationship. You see, the whole country is thrown into chaos because David's son ends up fighting him for the throne. And they go through this period of time where where no one really knows who's leading. And the country becomes divided. And instead of God's people going to war with God, they start warring against one another. And that's the catastrophe that that brings. And I've watched so many families, when it came to a piece of land, when it came to a possession, when it came to whatever, I wanted it, they wanted it, and we so coveted it that we started to ruin the relationship and families that we won't even speak to each other anymore over what? Stuff. But you see, it doesn't just affect us, it infects the people around us. And not only does it infect, it makes us ineffective. Do you remember when Joshua crossed the Jordan and they had this incredible battle in Jericho? And do you remember how they fought that war? They did two things. They walked, they worshiped. They moved forward for God, they obeyed God, and they praised God. Let me ask you, can you move forward for God? Can you walk and worship? If you can, you can go to war with God. And the walls of Jericho came down. Why? Because they obeyed God. They did what God called them to do. Have you ever wondered how foolish they looked walking and worshiping? Have you ever thought about how foolish we look to the world? We look like a bunch of idiots walking along worshiping Jesus. And people are like, those people have lost their mind. But here's the thing. I'd rather look like a fool to the world than a fool to God. And God said this at Jericho, leave it all. Do not touch the spoils, leave it. But there was a man named Achan who decided that he wanted this beautiful robe and some of the silver, and so he took it and he hid it. And by the way, people that tell me all the time, I don't know if it's right, I don't know if it's wrong. Here's the thing, when you and I want to hide things, when we want to keep them a secret, that's a good indication. If we're not comfortable bringing it into the light, that's a good indication it's not what God wants you to do. And he hid it under his tent in a hole. Let me ask you, what good is your stuff hiding in a hole? But see, that's what coveting, just, I just want it. And you got to think about this guy. He probably spent a couple of decades in the desert. He'd probably never seen anything this beautiful. And it's just like, man, I just so want it. And he took it. The very next town that they attacked was the town of Ai. Ai was this tiny, little, insignificant town. It's like taking Henry. No offense. Okay? So we go from Denver to Henry. 
And here's what the commanders say. We don't need the whole army. We just take part of the army. We'll go up there, take part of a day. We'll whoop them, and we'll come home. It's no big deal. And they go up there, and they're soundly defeated. Why? Joshua cries out to God, God, what's going on? How come we're being defeated? How come we're ineffective in our lives for you? Coveting. What what do you mean coveting? Achan took and he hid. Do you see how coveting causes us to be ineffective for God? So how do you and I discover if we have a coveting heart? Well, one of the things that that shows up is discontentment. And one of the ways that you and I can discover discontentment in our lives is by asking ourselves a couple of questions. And I want you to listen to these, not with the idea, oh, yep, that's Joe, yep, that's Susie. I want you to listen for you. Diagnosing discontentment. Do you compare and criticize? So often we wanted to be the person that was doing whatever it was, and so we compare and we criticize. Do you tend to grumble and complain? Are you generally unthankful? Do you pound and withdraw when you don't get what you want? Do you deal with depression as a result of focusing on what you don't have instead of what you do have? Do you know how much of our depression today is based on I'll be happy if I get when I get? Do you have a pessimistic, half-glass, empty kind of attitude? Are you jealous and envious over what others have? Are you a uh, fault finder? One of the reasons that we find fault with people is because we've got to justify why they have and we don't. Are you preoccupied with possessions? Are you overwhelmed with waves of worry, anxiety, and fear because... What you have has become overshadowed by what you don't have. Has misery taken over ministry? Because you're focused on getting instead of giving. Are you stingy with what God has blessed you with? Does God get your leftovers or your first fruits? Do you love things and use people or use things and love people? So how do we cultivate within us, instead of a coveting heart, a controlled heart? Well, turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. Philippians 4.10, and by the way, we are going this fall in two weeks to start a new series, Joy in the Journey, going through the book of Philippians. Philippians 4.10, how I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know that you have always been concerned for me. But you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Even so, you have done well to share with me in my present difficulty. As you know, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I was first brought the good news and then traveled on to Macedonia. No other church did this. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent help more than once. I don't say this because I want a gift from you. Rather, I want you to receive a reward for your kindness. At the moment, I have all that I need and more, and I am generously supplied with your gifts that you sent me with Epaphroditus. 
They are a sweet-smelling sacrifice. This is acceptable and pleasing to God. And this same God who takes care of me will supply all of your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Now all glory to God, our Father, forever and ever. Amen. Do you see the antidote here to coveting? It's called contentment. How many of us are living content lives? And what I want you to understand is contentment kills coveting in the same way that coveting kills contentment. Which is killing which in your life? Is your contentment killing off the coveting? Or is coveting killing off your contentment? So how do we develop content lives that result in a controlled heart? Paul says here, First, rest in Christ's provisions, not in your constant consuming. When you and I don't rest in our relationship with Jesus, we don't trust him for our provision, and we start trying. Many of us today are trying. We are not trusting. And when that happens, we fall into this worldly pattern of comparing ourselves with other people. Now, Paul talked about that in 2 Corinthians 10, 12. He says, we do not dare classify ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves among themselves, and they are not wise. Do you realize how much of your life you are wasting comparing yourself to other people? And we compare everything today. We compare our careers, our cars, We even compare our clothes. Oh, you're a doctor? Yeah, I'm just a trucker. What do we do? Comparing careers, right? Oh, you drive a Prius? Cadillac. What are we doing? We're comparing cars, right? We even compare our clothes. Now, ladies, I'm going to pick on you for a moment. You can send me all the hate mail you want, okay? goes to Pastor Gillies. No, I'm just kidding. What happens when two loving Christian women show up to a Christian conference wearing the exact same outfit? They're immediate friends, right? Not quite. See, what happens, ladies, is you're a little put out. And you look over and you're like, I can't believe she's wearing that. Have you ever asked yourself why you upset? Here's the reality. You can't compare. It's the exact same outfit. So you know what you do? You drop down in the next comparison on the list, and that's our bodies. And ladies, this is, this is destructive to you and to your heart, and you're comparing yourself based on the world's value of beauty, not the beauty of the Word of God, which is a heart beauty, an inner beauty. And so what you do is you're like, well, at least I look better in it. I would never be caught dead if I looked that fat. Okay, and you have these horrible thoughts in your head. Where do they come from? Competing. We, we, we compare today our bank accounts. We're comparing our bodies. We're comparing everything. If you ever asked, why are we doing this constant comparison? Because that's how the world gets its value, its points, through what we possess. You know what Jesus said about that? Jesus said you can get all the points in the world and still live a pointless life. Here's what he said in Luke twelve fifteen. Take heed and be aware of coveting, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things they possess. 
How much time would you have to serve God if you would stop comparing? And we do it all the time because we're trying to figure out Do I have value in this situation? Do I have some way of one-upping that person, whether it's I look better, I think I'm smarter, I've got more money, I have a better car, I've got a bigger house, and we're just constantly comparing. And, And we're never able to rejoice with people. We're always in that mourning period where we're 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 mad over what other people have. That's what coveting does in our lives. You and I need to learn how to admire without the need to acquire. When was the last time you were able to just admire something and say, that's awesome that God blessed you? Without the need to acquire. Well, how come God hasn't blessed me? And turn it into a pity party. Second thing that Paul says to us here, find your satisfaction in the Savior, not in stuff. If you look at verse 13. It's amazing to me how the world gets its power. The world gets its power through what it possesses, right? The more land it has, the more stuff it has, the more buildings, the more money, that's power through what you possess. But as believers in Jesus Christ, where do we get our power? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's your clue. We get our power not through what we possess, but the one who possesses us, Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this question. Has there been a point in your life where you've confessed your sin and you have cried out for Jesus Christ to save you from your sin? Because if you have, the Bible says you were a saint and you had the Savior in your life. Now here's the question. Is Jesus enough? See, this is the question we're not asking in the church today. And for most of us, Jesus is not enough, and so we look to substitutes to fill parts of our heart. Jesus fills a little bit of our heart, but he's not enough for us. And what we're saying is we're going to marginalize the master because Jesus is not enough, so therefore I'm going to pile a whole bunch of stuff on top of the Savior. And you know what happens to Jesus? He just gets buried in our lives. And we don't dig him out until Sunday. And then Monday comes along and we just bury him back with all of the substitutes. Is Jesus enough? Have you gotten to a place in your life where it's the Savior and stuff? Or is it just the Savior where you're finding your satisfaction? Verse 10, Paul says that we are to rejoice in what we have. Notice what he rejoices in here. Relationship, not riches. His praise revolves around the people not possessions. And I wonder today, how much of our life are we praising God for the people in our life? You see, when I stop for a moment and look at how rich I am relationally, when I look at the amazing wife that God provided for me, when I look at three amazing kids that are serving Jesus, not perfect, but have a love for the Lord, when I look at my dad who's faithfully at 80 years old serving Jesus, when I look at, at, at my church family and all of the friends I have in faith, I realize something. I am rich relationally. Are you praising God for people or just for possessions? Then Paul says this, Learn to base your contentment on Christ and not on your circumstances. And he says, I've gone through it all. I've gone through times where I was starving and times where my belly was full. 
And I'm going to tell you, your circumstances are going to change. And many of us in the Christian life, we are basing our contentment on our circumstances, not on Christ. Therefore, we're chasing after happiness, not holiness. And when any time in our life, hard times come, we get angry with God. Can I tell you, we grow in the groaning times, not the good times. Celebrate the groaning times. Why? Because God's going to grow you and mature you. The church, we just want everything to be good all the time. What? So that we don't have to grow because we don't want to deal with growing pains in our life. We want to live a comfortable life. You see, here's the reality. Circumstances are going to change. Who's to say? I have no idea. I may have cancer right now. Feel good. But I have no idea. And, and what if in a couple of weeks I went into the doctor and he says, hey, I got some bad news. You, you got cancer and it's bad. Let me ask you, did my circumstances change? Absolutely. Let me ask you this. Did Christ change? No. And what if my contentment is based in my circumstances? Well, in that moment, my circumstances have changed, and so does my contentment. You see, many of us today, we're, we're basing our contentment on our health instead of him, on our bank account instead of his blood. We could go through a list of all of the things that we're trying to find our contentment in. Your circumstances will change, but Jesus Christ doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Paul then says this, look to give, not to get. I love that word. Satisfaction is found in serving, not in selfishness. Paul wanted to be a blessing, not a burden. Is that your heart? Are you looking for ways that you can serve or or ways that people can serve you? Then he says this lastly, give glory to God, not to greed. If I were to look at your time, treasure, and talents, in other words, we got a hold of your personal calendar, we got a hold of your credit card statement, your checkbook, would it reveal that you love to give glory to God or your life is primarily revolving around greed. This morning we have the privilege of coming to the table and taking communion. Why do we need to do this on a regular basis? Because we need to be reminded of this truth. The body and the blood is enough. And when you and I forget that Jesus is enough, we start to replace Jesus with junk and our lives become flooded with substitutes. This morning, I'm going to pray, and and you don't have to be a partner or a member to take communion. We just ask that you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and that you've confessed your sins and come clean. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to invite you to come. But as you come to the table this morning, I want you to ask yourself just one question. Is Jesus enough for me? Or are there areas in my life where I've tried to substitute the Savior? Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how you speak to us. Thank you for this series of relationship, not rules. And I know it's, it's been effective in my life. It's challenged me to reorganize my life and to rethink the things that really matter most. And so, God, I pray as we come to the table this morning that, that it would be all about your son, Jesus Christ. Father, help us to come and to really honestly answer that question, is Jesus enough for me. We pray these things in your name. Amen.